So, so doesn't the sanctuary look beautiful, guys? Right. I actually, I believe this is the largest uh, number of lilies that we've ever had to grace the chancel area, and and I know that many of you look forward to to seeing them each year, and uh, to placing one in honor or in memory of a loved one, and, and you know they definitely have been a staple of Christian imagery for centuries, with their their beautiful white blossoms that have come to symbolize purity, and innocence and hope, and new life. And that symbolism is not just something that the early Christian church invented. They actually took it straight from Scripture. Because lilies are mentioned numerous times in the Bible. In uh, 1 Kings chapter 7, God himself commanded that the capitals of the temple columns would be fashioned in the shape of an open lily blossom. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 5, when that big 17,000 gallon capacity bronze water laver that the priests used to to hold the ritual purification water was being described it was to be three inches thick and its rim was to be flared out like a cup resembling a lily blossom Uh, king solomon makes reference to the lily of the valley and and in chapter 14 of his book the prophet hosea even links the idea of them of lilies to the messiah and he says in hosea 14 He shall blossom like the lily. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty and his fragrance shall be like Lebanon. Now, now for my part, I I think they remind me of like the horn section of an orchestra, right? Ready to just just trumpet out the news of the resurrection. And, And actually, I'm not alone in thinking that one anonymous poet, and this is on the back of your bulletin, uh, he wrote, Easter morn with lilies fair, fill the church with perfume rare stately lilies pure and white flooding darkness with their light gloom and sorrow drifts away they're trumpeting this hallowed day with their joyful lily blooms pointing to the empty tomb the empty tomb of the living christ the first fruits of the dead rising like a clarion call of a horn solo at sunup summoning the whole of the created order to praise he who was dead and is alive forevermore. And that message is actually going to come to us today from very close to our last psalm. We're, we're getting there, guys. Psalm 148. So I hope you're following along in the scriptures. Uh, for those of you just joining us, we've been on an almost three-year journey through the book of Psalms. And so we started 147-some services ago. Uh, and now we're up to Psalm 148 which tells us, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. And He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men 
and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of the Lord who are near to him. Praise the Lord. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for these living oracles of faith and truth and hope, the good news of the gospel that you've spread all through the scripture from the first chapters of Genesis to the last amen of the revelation. And so we ask you to come now, Lord, as we open up this psalm, that you would write it on our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit, and let everything that's said and done in these next few moments be to your glory alone, through Christ our Lord. Amen. So, you know, just, uh, just like it would be impossible to walk into the sanctuary this morning uh, and miss the unmistakable sight and, and the smell of these trumpet lilies, you can't miss the sound of an actual horn when it resonates out strong and clear, right? And that's really the whole point. Uh, few things are more attention-grabbing than the blast of a horn. Uh, throughout history, they were used on battlefields to uh, announce advances or, or retreats or various other maneuvers. They were used by the Levites to call for a sacred assembly of the people to gather at the tabernacle and then later at the temple for worship and for instruction. Uh, at other times, trumpets would sound a note of alarm that an enemy was approaching the city gates so that the, the people would be on guard. And horns were used by heralds. I not if your name's Harold. Okay. Uh, but by regular heralds, right? We still have those guys around once in a while, right? At coronations and royal weddings. But, but in antiquity, heralds were vitally important. Uh, heralds were the, the mouthpiece of authority. They were the men who were regularly commissioned by the Roman Empire to go out from the court of Caesar and go into the marketplace or into the town square or out to the city gate and to gather the people with this loud fanfare and to lift up their voices and, and to deliver a message and bring an announcement that had been assigned to them by a higher authority and say, good news, good news from the royal throne, come and hear. And see, that's the message that we bring this morning, except this message's author isn't Caesar, but the risen Christ. And its intent isn't to call people to a secular meeting, but to a sacred assembly. And the clarion call is not from any ordinary instrument, but from the vacant tomb that one commentator has said has become like a trumpet proclaiming the victory of life over death and the continuation of Christ's presence and mission in this world. And brothers and sisters, that's the old, old story we tell. Amen, somebody? So listen to it again with me this morning. The <clears throat> Gospel of Matthew tells us early Sunday morning as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake for the angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone and sat on it. His face shone like the sun and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they, they fell into a dead faint. And then the angel spoke to the women. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. 
He's risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come, see where his body was lying. And now go, quickly, and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you to Galilee. And you will see him there. Remember what I've told you. The women ran quickly from the tomb. They were, were very frightened, but also filled with great joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them. And he greeted them. And, and they ran to him and grasped his feet and worshipped him. And, and, and Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they'll see me there. So the women do as they were instructed by the angel. And on the way, the risen Lord stops them and, and greets them and they worship him. But he quickly sends them on their way again. And, and they're still so, so scared and so happy and, and so confused. They evidently think that Jesus had only maybe just visited them in spirit. Because when they get to the disciples, the apostle John tells us, this is from John chapter 20, that, that she, meaning Mary, ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. And he also noticed the linen wrappings lying there. While the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. And then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw and believed. And so when, when Peter and John heard from Mary Magdalene that the body of Jesus that had been placed in the sepulcher on Friday afternoon was no longer there, uh, and of her conclusion that the enemy had taken it away, instantly these two apostles run to the sepulcher, with, with John outrunning Peter and getting there first. And I, I absolutely love the fact, I've told you this before, that John couldn't resist slipping in that little detail to his gospel, right? Because <laughs> remember, John was pretty old by the time he wrote his gospel, it was probably like 50, 60 years after the resurrection, and I'm, sh I, I'm sure there was a little smile on his face as he put that in, right? Because he, he, he had probably teased Peter about it over the years, uh, you know, the way competitive guys tease each other good-naturedly sometimes. <clears throat> but I, I think it really, it, it adds to the humanity and the reality of the story, and it also shows that to John, our eyewitness of this event, that details matter. Details matter. And when Peter and John go in, they don't see the body of Jesus, but they did see the grave clothes. And they saw them in a certain order. We read the linen clothes lying in one spot and the face cloth for the head being in a place by itself. Uh, and these grave clothes and the way that they were arranged made a huge impression on John because as we read, he saw and believed. But, but what exactly did they, those grave clothes, what did they cause John to believe? What did they make him believe? Was it the story that Mary told of Jesus' body not being there that he believed? That wouldn't make any sense. I mean, he didn't have to notice the linen to know that the body was gone, right? 
So what would the arrangement of the grave clothes have to do with seeing that and believing in the resurrection? Because I don't know about you, but that's a whole big leap from one to the other. Agreed? Right? You see, when John wrote that he saw the linen clothes lying, the word he used, it doesn't refer to just something lying on the floor discarded, like, you know, my bathroom when I change clothes. But rather, the word he used points to the fact that they were lying precisely. That the grave clothes were in exactly the position the body had occupied, literally. And you have to kind of picture this scene with me, right? You see, the linen wrappings he's talking about is kind of on the, the order of a wide bandage, you know, we'd use to bandage an arm or, or a leg, an injured leg. But these burial wrappings for Jesus would have started at the toes and continued all the way up to wrap around tightly until they reached the neck. And they didn't wrap the face. They didn't wrap the head. But instead they tied a square linen cloth around it. Right? And that would have been the, the method they used to prepare Jesus' body for burial. In fact, John had actually written about that important point earlier in his account. Because if you go back to John chapter 19, he said afterwards, meaning after the crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus, because remember he was afraid of the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away, and with him came Nicodemus. Remember, he was the guy who came to see Jesus at night. And he brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointments made of myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial customs, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long strips of linen cloth. And so I want you to picture this. I want you to imagine this. These two men pour pounds and pounds and pounds and pounds of spice ointment into the wrappings that envelop the body of Jesus. And, and these liquid spices, as they dried, would harden and would cause the cloth wrappings to stick together and become almost like a cocoon, like a cocoon around the body of Jesus following its contours and, and, and sealing the bandages and, and trapping in the odors and the fluids of what would normally would be a decomposing body. And that's all they could do. Because Jewish burial customs specifically forbid the practice of embalming or mummifying the dead like the Egyptians had done. <clears throat> and so, so think about it now, with that in mind. The only way, humanly speaking, that a body could ever be removed from a hard shell like that would be by, by cutting it and laying it end to end on each side so the body could be taken out, right? How else would you get it out? Right? That's the only way it could be pulled out from the wrappings, as if a grave robber would go to all the trouble to do that. So when the disciples saw the linen clothes lying uncut and undisturbed, lying precisely as they had been, but now empty, now hollow, it convinced them beyond any doubt that Christ's body had miraculously, supernaturally been divinely removed and that it had been, as one commentator said, had emerged right through the grave clothes, disappearing from within its resin-encrusted knots and folds undisturbed and now served as a silent memorial. And those empty grave clothes still clutching that vanished body left testimony to the presence and the power of Almighty God. But yet, un unbelievably, not everyone believed. In fact, the truth is, Jesus' enemies wanted not to believe, and so the Jewish religious leaders and the Romans together, they made up a lie. 
the lie that the disciples had stolen the body. But, but we already knew to expect that, right? Because remember, Jesus told us as much when he rebuked the religious leaders who mocked the idea of resurrections and tried to make Jesus look like a fool. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 22, it tells us the same day Sadducees came to him, those folks who say there is no resurrection, and they said, uh, they had a question to ask him. He said, teacher, uh, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us that first married and died. Having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. And so to the second and the third, down to the seventh. And after them all, the woman died. And here's where they tried to trap him. So now in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife shall she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But church, they shouldn't have been because all through the Old Testament, God promised to send a Messiah who would do exactly the kind of stuff that Jesus did and said. But somehow the people kept missing the point, which actually brings me and takes me to my closing point, the point of all these trumpet lilies and of all this talk of horns this morning. Because in the Bible, in Hebrew, just like in English, that word horn can mean several different things at the same time. Right? Like for us in English, it means like an instrument or an alarm or, you know, those pointy things on the head of an animal, right? Well, it means all those things in Scripture too, but in addition, the word for horn in the Bible also signifies strength and the power to use it and the authority to wield it, which is exactly the kind of Savior that God had promised and that the people claimed to be expecting all along because that symbolism is everywhere in their faith practice. Remember, animal horns were used as receptacles for the holy oil that anointed priests and kings. A long-twisted goat's horn called a shofar was played to call people to war or to worship depending on the note that was played. In the temple, the horns on the altar were dabbed with blood from the sacrifices to, to purify and, and to make atonement for sin, which is why, if you remember way back in our study in Psalm 18, the Bible tells us, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my shield and the what? The horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And I give you just one more quick example, one last illustration, one that pulls together all of these sacred scripture references, all of these symbolic trumpet horns we've been talking about, and brings them right into the life of our Lord Jesus. And that illustration comes to us from the Gospel of Luke and from the mouth of the man who was blessed to be the father of John the Baptist. You remember him, right? The priest named Zechariah, the guy uh, who was struck dumb for not believing in miracles and who, having regained his ability to speak, he, he thanked God for his offspring, John, who would be the forerunner of the Messiah. And who were told in Luke, 
was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. And church, that's what this Easter is all about, is the Christ, the anointed one, the horn of our salvation, the very God-made flesh, who's living, dying, and rising again, actually forgives anyone and everyone who believes. Be it young men and maidens together, old men and children, And so let them, let us, praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people, for the people who are near to him, near to me, and near to you if you're found in him. Right now, today, right right at this moment, he's near. He is here as close as your next heartbeat and as sure as the last one you'll take someday. Because all of this empty tomb stuff we've been talking about is not just something that we bring out on Easter Sunday to admire and then tuck back away like those dusty mementos we keep in a shoebox under our bed. No, guys, church, I'm talking about an historic event complete with quantifiable forensic evidence and eyewitness accounts So much so, honestly, that no legitimate academic will even debate the point on the merits anymore. And the reality of the resurrection proves that Easter Sunday is not the end of the story because Jesus' cross is empty too. Empty of Jesus' body, but full of promises. Full of hope for you and for me and for any who will repent and believe the gospel. Because, you know, the world says if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, right? But the truth of the matter is our God has never made a promise that was too good to be true because our God is different. Because instead of promises full of emptiness on Easter, God gave us something empty but full of promise, an empty cross, an empty shroud, an empty tomb that together with all of creation never ceased to raise the trumpet call, good news, Good news from the throne of heaven. The king was dead but is alive forevermore. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, and church, the host of the table laid out before us here today. Laid out for any who repent and believe the gospel message that's resounding all around us, calling us to communion with him. Will you join him at this table of mercy with me? Let's pray together. God, our Father, uh, it's truly right and our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise, especially in this Holy Supper, recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ and asking you by the joy of his resurrection and in expectation of his coming again that you unite us in your truth and love so we can confess your name and sit together at one table. And so come, Lord, now, continue your transforming work in this place and in this time, that eyes may be opened, that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine, and we ask you to pour out your Spirit upon us and upon these your gifts, that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.